Welcome to All McCartney, a podcast exploring the musical legacy of Paul McCartney created by Paul's fans for Paul's fans. My name is Amy. My name is Andy. And on this episode, we will be discussing Paul McCartney's most controversial songs. Although Paul McCartney has been historically stereotyped as the cute beetle, he certainly has never been the squeaky clean beetle. Everything from drug experimentation, his long-standing and outspoken relationship with cannabis, paternity lawsuits, his feud with the other Beatles, questionable business dealings, and every aspect of his relationship with his second wife, Heather Mills, are just a few examples of controversies that have presented themselves throughout the nearly six decades that Paul McCartney has been a public figure. In this episode, we discuss the songs that have gotten Paul McCartney into varying degrees of trouble over the course of his career, whether it be they were songs that had been widely criticized by fans and critics, songs that had gotten McCartney into legal trouble, or songs that had been banned from media outlets. We begin with a song from the Beatles' 1966 album Revolver, Got to Get You Into My Life. At the time of its inception, its sound had been highly influenced by the London band Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, and specifically Georgie Fame's soulful incorporation of horns. McCartney was so influenced by Georgie Fame's sound that two of the musicians from the band provided trumpets and saxophones on Got to Get You Into My Life. For over 30 years, it had been thought of as an unassuming love song, as the you of the song might well be a real or fictitious love interest. However, it wasn't until Barry Miles' biography of McCartney, many years from now, released in 1997, that the truth about Got to Get You Into My Life was revealed. Yes, it was a love song of sorts, but not to a person. Rather, it was a love song to cannabis. McCartney said to Miles of the song, quote, It's actually an ode to pot, like someone else might write an ode to chocolate or a good claret. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. 
So Got to Get You Into My Life plays with this double meaning, and we see this in a number of other Beatles songs, but basically the premise being that the Beatles want to kind of start experimenting with some more controversial and cutting-edge sort of themes and ideas, and they know that if they just are really blatant about it, it's going to get banned by the BBC. And I suppose a little a year later, they're not going to care when they get to when they get to um, Sergeant Pepper's, right? For instance. But in this one, um, Paul's pretty coy, and the listener at the time is lured into thinking it's just a love song to a person. Uh, but we find out later, of course, that it's uh, a love song to marijuana. This is similar to other double meaning Beatles lyrics, like "She's a big teaser," um, and he likes to keep his fire engine clean which is, um, these are, you know, metaphors, you know, for sex. And there are ways that they got those into the songs and nobody's the wiser. And meanwhile, they're having this little inside joke and, 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 you know, a laugh, basically at everyone's expense. And that's just sort of their sense of humor. So Paul's written this great song, and he's he's decided that this would be the first Beatles track to feature a brass section, and he's he, it's right out of Georgie Flame and the Blue Flames. Um, and uh, you know, according to the the Abbey Road um, studio session notes from um, the the great Mark Lewison, uh, there's this wonderful story that plays out about this. Eddie Thornton was one of the five recruits. And quote, I was playing with Georgie Flame in the, in the Blue Flames, so I knew the Beatles, John and Paul particularly from studios and also from the London nightclub scene. In fact, Paul met Linda Eastman when he was at the Bag O'Nails Club watching us perform. But it was at the Scotch of St. James, the nightclub, that Paul asked me to do the session with them. So I find that interesting that it really is a part of also the story of Paul meeting Linda 
and hanging out in that nightclub scene at the time. It's a very happy time for Paul, meeting, meeting Linda, going to see this band that he liked a lot and hanging out in the scene. Um, so the way it worked out then with the session, you've got a couple of also just um, freelance studio players in there. But another one of the Blue Flames, uh, the tenor saxophone player, Peter Coe, got the job because the group's baritone player, Glenn Hughes, fell sick on the morning of the session, again, according to the, the Mark Lewison book. So it would be interesting to hear that with a different instrumentation. The way it worked out, the one that we're used to hearing is, of course, the, the two tenors, the two trumpets overdubbed and this just the the thick tenor saxophone trumpet texture but it would be kind of interesting if they would have had a baritone uh, saxophone player in there it would have been just a completely different sound but i think the track is obviously just amazing um it it's different than a lot of other beatles songs in that and a lot of other paul songs as we've talked about in other uh, episodes that it just there's not a lot of harmony and moving chords in in the structure but it's it's that pumping r&b bass along with these horns that just keeps it uh selling us all the way that it's just a simple love song about a girl in late 1967 the who released their album the who sells out which featured the single i can see for miles McCartney read an interview with The Who's Pete Townsend in which Townsend described I Can See For Miles as the loudest, dirtiest, and most raw song that had ever been recorded. I know you deceived me, now here's a surprise. I know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles Oh yeah If you think that I don't know about the little tricks you play Never see you when deliberately you put things in my way. Well, here's a poke at you. You're gonna choke on it too. You're gonna lose that smile because of the while. I could see for miles and miles. I could see for miles and miles. I could see for miles and miles and miles and McCartney interpreted Townsend's description of I Can See For Miles as a challenge to his own songwriting, and McCartney set out to create a song that would top the Who song. And so McCartney wrote Helter Skelter as a response to I Can See For Miles. In Helter Skelter, McCartney uses the imagery of a spiral amusement park slide as a metaphor for life. Between July and September of 1968, the Beatles recorded several versions of the song, and in McCartney's quest to record the loudest and craziest song ever, the recording process of the song left all members of the Beatles both physically and emotionally exhausted. Helter Skelter was featured on the White Album, released in November of 1968, and subsequently captured the attention of Charles Manson. In 1969, Manson was 34 years old and had spent the majority of his life in prison. He had formed a commune in San Francisco, which later relocated to the Los Angeles area, 
and the commune consisted of followers heavily involved in hallucinogenic drugs. Manson was an aspiring musician himself and a music fan, and his deranged mind believed that the Beatles had implanted secret messages for him into several of the songs on the White Album. The Manson family, as Charles Manson's followers were called, were responsible for a killing spree in the summer of 1969 that resulted in eight deaths. When he and his followers were subsequently put on trial for the murders, Manson gave testimony that referenced the Beatles' White Album songs such as Blackbird, Piggies, Revolution 1 and Revolution 9 as containing what he believed were secret messages to him, and Manson specifically used the term helter-skelter as signifying a race riot. Despite the song's unwitting affiliation with the Manson family murders, the song has been covered by a variety of musicians over the past five decades. And Paul McCartney has not shied away from the song either, as it has been a staple of his concerts for years, so much so, in fact, that in 2011, McCartney won a Grammy for his performance of the song on his live album, Good Evening, New York City. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. You ain't no doubt. 
guess one of the, my favorite things about this track is that it sounds like the band is about to break. Um, it sounds like Paul's voice is about to shatter. It sounds like the strings are being plucked so hard of the guitars they're going to, you know, break. It sounds like the drums are being hit so hard they're going to break ahead. It's it's the Beatles being pushed to their brink, and it results in a really heavy sounding tune and it's effective all the way because uh because of those fact because of the fact that they're being pushed to the brink it's 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 brilliant of the beatles and paul mccartney in with his composition pushing the group like they did and we don't hear the i've got blisters on my fingers on this This is the mono version on the stereo version of course ringo famously at the end of this epic long jam declares that i've got blisters on my fingers and it's because they jammed on this stuff endlessly and forever, and they had all these weird things in their in their in their headphones. They had fold back and 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 weird, um, you know, audio effects going in and out that just enhances the overall feeling of the, of the song. Uh, again, we have Paul um, listening to a band, being inspired by a band, writing in the style of a particular band, and I would say um, in this case. He easily achieves his objective, if not way overachieves. I think it's a much heavier um, sounding song than the Who song that inspired it. And also that has to do with the sound of the guitars. The, the, the kind of distortion that they're using is ahead of its time. It's just, I mean, the, 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 you know, Pete Townsend's got a, a distorted you know, sound to his guitar on the Who track, but there's still that real clear crisp sort of sound to it whereas the, the the Beatles one just has that crunch that is going to be a part of really music in the late 60s on through a lot of the 70s and that's the tone that that guitarists use uh, also the bass is being picked which is not uncommon for Paul but in this case it's being picked really hard and there's also like a really edgy trebly uh, sort of uh, sound to the bass that really drives it even further so i just think it's this one's breaking all sorts of barriers um in terms of of, of recorded music at the time it's so ahead of its time in terms of it just sounds so heavy and we a lot of it is owed too to the fact that these riffs that the that the guitar and bass play the um together are um you know basically paving the way for groups like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath to take over and become the dominant uh, sounding groups in England in the late 60s. In episodes 2, 3, and 14 of this podcast, we've gone into great detail about Paul and Linda McCartney's album Ram, which was released in 1971, a little over a year after the Beatles had broken up. At the time of its release, the album was controversial because it was generally considered by fans and critics alike to be a strange record. Not to mention Linda's prominence as a vocalist and songwriter on the album was controversial because as a musician, she was a novice. Adding to the album's controversy was the song Too Many People, which in a very passive-aggressive way contained references to John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Upon listening to the album immediately following its release, John Lennon believed that several of Ram's songs contained veiled messages to and about him and Yoko, such as Dear Boy, Three Legs, Smile Away, and The Backseat of My Car. 
McCartney would later claim that none of those songs contained jabs at Lennon, but McCartney did confess that the lyrics to Too Many People actually did. In Too Many People, McCartney was thinking of John and Yoko when he wrote the lyric, You took your lucky break and broke it in two, as Paul was still bitter over the breakup of the Beatles and held John responsible for it. And also the lyric, Too Many People Preaching Practices, which was McCartney's veiled attempt at calling the Lennons hypocrites. Too Many People subsequently ignited a flame war between Lennon and McCartney, in which the two former songwriting partners trash-talked about each other in the media. Ultimately, Lennon took musical revenge on McCartney in Lennon's scathing song, How Do You Sleep, which was featured on his 1971 album Imagine. McCartney joked that he considered writing a song in response to How Do You Sleep, titled Very Well, Thank You. Fortunately, that wasn't necessary because on July 29, 1972, the McCartneys and the Lennons met for dinner in New York City, and at that meeting, Paul and John agreed to put their differences aside and stop talking trash about each other in the press. Nevertheless, the brief period during which the most successful songwriting duo in the history of popular music feuded in public with each other remains memorialized in one of Paul McCartney's most controversial songs, Too Many People.
So I guess if there's any controversy at the time, if this is about John and Yoko, it's pretty much now we know that, yeah, it was obviously a, a, a song war between John and Paul. And I, you know, I remember first learning about that and feeling really uncomfortable about the conflict between the two of them. And, oh, isn't it so sad that they're writing these acerbic sort of lyrics um, digging at each other and how do you sleep? And, you know, the only thing you did was yesterday. And then Paul's writing too many people preaching practices and they're going back and forth on this. But I think the joyous thing about it really is, well, first of all, they they made amends later. Um, so they, it's maybe a way of them, maybe a way they processed it. But secondly, the result of it is some pretty fantastic rock and roll music. <laughs> and so if, you know, it's like a lot of times people quarrel and, and friends argue and it doesn't result in too great, um, you know, songs by ex Beatles. So it's kind of a win-win in this case, but, uh, you know, there's just so much going on with this in terms of the guitar and perhaps even though it, he's criticizing John, maybe he's also kind of inspired by his music in the kind of a weird way because his guitar playing is almost John-like with its distorted kind of roughness, um, although it is Hugh McCracken as well. Uh, but he's got the acoustic tuned down a whole step. You get this bassy sound. And it's the same on uh, yesterday in Heart of the Country, incidentally. But it's 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 something he likes to do to put it into that different key. And the the, the acoustic solo at the end that Paul is playing is uh, really just inspired and 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 ripping around. Um, and then you've got Denny Sywell back there, the future Wings drummer, just really pushing the song in terms of his kind of like athletic fills and and getting that moving. Um, but all that I think helps to fuel this um, this uh, this this you know release of of uh, pent up emotions that that Paul is is processing, and he does so in just an inspired rant, and it's so good that John, of course, has to respond, and it's just one of my favorites favorite arguments ever. As previously stated, the McCartneys and the Lennons had a dinner meeting in New York City on January 29, 1972, at which time the two men agreed to stop arguing with each other through the media. The following day, January 30, 1972, the Bloody Sunday Massacre took place in Derry, Northern Ireland, during which British soldiers opened fire on Irish protesters, resulting in 14 civilian deaths. Paul McCartney was still in the United States when he heard of the massacre. He was disturbed and angered by the events, not only because he was British and his country's military was occupying Northern Ireland, but also because his family was of Irish descent and therefore he felt a kinship to the Irish people. McCartney promptly channeled his feelings of grief and frustration into the song Give Ireland Back to the Irish, and it instantly became one of the most controversial songs of McCartney's career. The song was written quickly, with songwriting credit also given to Linda, and in the song the British are asked to empathize with the Irish perspective. Immediately upon their return to London from New York City on February 1st, Paul and Linda recorded the song with Wings at Abbey Road Studios. Give Ireland Back to the Irish was released as Wings' very first single on February 25, 1972, and immediately the BBC banned the song from airplay. Oh, <laughs> 
Paul McCartney finally does a direct political uh, takedown of a situation, and it it takes perhaps uh, some other things that um, other factors like his buddy John. So as uh, we were learning, you know, he hangs out with John the night before. Then Bloody Sunday happens. Then Paul writes a song, and it does make you sort of ponder: Did Paul have John on the mind? Was he thinking about John in more than just uh, the meeting? And so it, it it does kind of wonder, make you wonder, what what is Paul listening to at the time? And is he aware of John's work at the time? Probably. Uh, John and Paul were both pretty um, reliably checking each other's work out at that time. So it kind of makes me wonder, is it inspired by Give Me Some Truth? I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I've had enough of reading things by new body, psychotic, big-headed politics. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. No short head. Yeah. Belly, son of tricky dick, he's gonna murder 
Looking at the songs side by side, there's not a lot in common in terms of the melody, their chord structure, their keys, things like that. But I do think that the energy in the songs is remarkably similar. And it also, when you listen to the McCartney, Give Ireland Back to the Irish, it does sound like a different McCartney or a McCartney that's been inspired by, you know, probably John Lennon. And, and it's evident in the way he delivers the vocal and also the cho uh, the choices with the guitar, quite frankly, too. I mean, you have George Harrison playing on Give Me Some Truth and then on Give Ireland Back to the Irish, it opens with all the slide guitar, which is not super typical and common of, of Wings at the time. So it just makes me kind of wonder if there's something there. And maybe not, but it's kind of interesting nonetheless. Um, looking at the differences of lyric writing between the two people is astonishing. Um, this is a song that was banned by the BBC, yet, I, you know, if you look at the lyrics, kind of the most um, charged lyric might be, um, if on on your way to work you were stopped by Irish, Irish soldiers, would you lie down, do nothing? Would you give in or go berserk? It, that's pretty soft compared to... Um, the attacks that John has in his song. Um, but I mean, I mean, obviously John's is less political, at least overtly. And, and there's no mistaking it with Paul. I mean, when, when he, when he does something that's obvious, it's really, really obvious. <laughs> Give Ireland back to the Irish. Don't make them have to take it away. Give Ireland back to the Irish, make Ireland Irish today. So, you know, he softens it a little bit with great Britain. You are tremendous and nobody knows like me. And when he does that, he, he uses a minor chord and that very sweet McCartney way of, of songwriting where he, he puts the, um, the minor chord in there and, and it just has a really sweet melody over the top. Uh, but this protest song, I think, is, is, is pretty fun. It's, it, it's, there's not as much going on in this as in Give Me, Give Me Some Truth in terms of the chords and the movement, kind of. But it was... I mean, what do you want? He, he wrote this really fast and recorded it really fast. And given all those factors, it's a pretty cool uh, protest song. And, uh, you know, I guess given the time, you can see why it was banned by the BBC. The second single to be issued by Wings was Mary Had a Little Lamb, released in May of 1972. The song sold poorly in the United States. However, in the United Kingdom, it reached number nine on the singles charts. Paul McCartney took the words of the classic children's nursery rhyme and set them to music. McCartney believed there was value and meaning to the nursery rhyme and said of it, quote, To me, that's a very heavy trip, those lyrics. It's very spiritual when someone hangs around because it's loved. I'm sure no one ever thinks about those kinds of things. The song was controversial because it left fans and critics perplexed. One misconception about the song was that it was McCartney's response to the controversy surrounding Give Ireland Back to the Irish. Another misconception was that McCartney had recorded the song to be ironic. However, McCartney himself claimed that he didn't write it for fans or critics, but rather he composed it for children. As a parent with three small children at that time, it occurred to McCartney that there was very little children's music that wasn't dumb or overly cute. Furthermore, he claimed his own children loved their father's version of Mary Had a Little Lamb when he sang it for them, and for these reasons he was inspired to experiment with composing a song specifically for children. Wings drummer Denny Sywell and guitarist Henry McCullough hated the song and resented having to perform on it. 
Years later, when Paul McCartney reflected back upon Mary Had a Little Lamb, he expressed regret about releasing the song as a single when he stated, quote, Sometimes I do things that aren't necessarily very carefully thought out. simple but effective children's song here with wings with a, a one four five and i can see why it would have been controversial at the time because of all these different ways that you could interpret it it's so bubbly it's so earnest 
that I think a lot of people thought that he was, you know, being ironic with the song, especially in close proximity to give violin back to the Irish. But it's um, it's a it's a bubbly children's song, and he achieves this by having a simple one four five progression, which is the very simplest of all the chord progressions. And then he's got this uh, chromatic thing at the end of each verse, bop, 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 where it goes like down a major third. And that back and forth on there makes it whimsical as well. And it's it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, I think it's fun. There's some really nice melodies in it, and, and there's some nice uh, harmonies and all that going along with it that certainly make it, um, I think, an effective song. But... I mean, I can see why um, some people that joined a rock band to play with a Beatle might be a little bit miffed at playing this song as opposed to some other kinds of more rocking numbers because it's it doesn't rock it and it's it is it sounds like it's right out of a children's uh, book or, or or animation series. So uh, it's kind of funny that this is a controversial song. But it's controversial for some understandable reasons, especially given the fact that Wings didn't really have a musical identity at this point yet. It's still really early on, and they're still figuring that out. And so we've got some interesting early rockers, and we've got some interesting early, I guess, children's songs that, that, that sound like they're straight out of an animated series. 1972 continued to be a year of controversial music by Wings when their third single, High, 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 was released in December of 1972 as a double A-side with Sea Moon. High, High, High was controversial because of the ambiguity of its lyrics. Was the song referencing explicit sex or drug use or perhaps both sex and drugs interchangeably? In his book Wingspan, published in 2002, Paul McCartney said that he thought of getting high as being either sex or drugs, and said of the song, quote, High, high, high was a song of the times. As anyone knows about that period, drugs were fairly widespread. Looking back on it now, I have a completely different perspective, but at that time, it seemed that everyone was doing it. To me, high, high, high was a perfectly harmless little rock and roll song. We're going to get high, high, high. In my mind, if someone gets drunk, then they're getting high. But because of the times, it was equated with pot, and so again, the BBC banned it. They played the other side, Sea Moon. That was a safer track, a nice track, but High 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 used to go down better at concerts. Because of the ambiguity of High High High's lyrics, the song was banned by the BBC, the second song in less than a year by Wings to have that dubious distinction. In its place, the single's other A-side, Sea Moon, became a hit in the United Kingdom. Meanwhile, in the United States, High High High's controversy had no bearing, and it became a top 10 hit in America in early 1973.
It's easy to see why this is a favorite of Paul's in his current live sets. And it really is in most of his concerts that he plays now, the song is in the set list. It's a driving rocker, that shuffle tune. And you can it, it's not hard to imagine this live because his band basically sounds exactly like this playing the song live now. Um, you know, as as a song itself, it's a blues. It's a one four five and um, it's got a little bit of a, refer- a refrain, um, but otherwise it's 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 pretty straight ahead. It's got a little halftime section, um, but it's 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 another ode to uh, Paul's drug of choice, and it's 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 okay. You know what I mean? It's it, it's not something that I would go. You know, when someone says, "Hey, can you play me something that demonstrates the songwriting genius of Paul McCartney?" I don't initially think, "Oh, you know what? Hi, hi, hi." But uh, it works. It works. It rocks. It's fun. It's um, it's 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 definitely um, a nice side to see of Paul. This kind of naughty side to Paul, right? You've got the merry head little lamb side of Paul, right? And then you've got this side of Paul, which is like, you know, it's still it's still it's still charming. It's still perky. It's still it's still fun. But it's it's like when the you know when 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 the the kids are in bed and and, and the and the, and the adults are out partying, and you have this song right here. So it's fun. It's it it shows a good side of Paul. And um, every time I've seen it live, it's just it's a blast. From Paul McCartney's 1980 solo album McCartney Two comes a song with a controversial title, Frozen Jap. As an instrumental piece, its title could have been anything, and yet McCartney selected a title containing what the Japanese considered to be a slur. For this reason, conspiracy theories developed around the song. Did McCartney give the song a title with a slur because he resented Japan after his incarceration in a Japanese prison? Or could the title Frozen Jap be a reference to his feelings about Yoko Ono? In actuality, the song was written in 1979, well before the ill-fated trip to Japan during which McCartney was arrested for possession of pot and incarcerated. While composing the song, McCartney had been experimenting with sounds on a synthesizer and came across a sound which, in his words, sounded oriental. He attempted to come up with a title that would reflect the song's Japanese sound, but he couldn't think of anything, and so he settled on Frozen Jab. After the release of the album in May 1980, McCartney claimed that he was unaware that the term Jap was a slur. 
It's interesting to note that on the Japanese pressings of McCartney 2, the song's title is Frozen Japanese. Yet throughout the rest of the world and throughout all of the subsequent reissues of the McCartney 2 album, the song remains Frozen Jap. I can really understand and sympathize with people that were offended by the title of the song. And even if you're not offended by the title of the song, just from the standpoint of it really being a racist slur, and I don't think Paul intended for it to be that. And we take him at his word and his comments that he was not intending for it to be a slur. I think we, you know, we can, you know, we can honor that. However, it still is one. And even if, it, if he had a different title, it's just not a very good song. It's, it, he's experimenting on the keyboard and he's got this synthesizer thing going on and it's a lot of pentatonic scale. So a pentatonic scale we've gone over in other episodes. It's the five note scale, really common in Asian styles of music, um, and um, and it appears in some Japanese forms of music, but not all. But a lot of folk instruments play pentatonic scales, and not just Asian folk instruments. A lot of folk instruments, just in general, play pentatonic scales. And so he's using this, and it just doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of thought, effort given to the song or the arrangement. To me, um, it just it was somebody who's such a master writer like Paul McCartney who can write some of the best pop songs of all time. The fact that this is on a record is kind of musically offensive to me. I just I don't know. Um, it's it's hard to find the good in this, and I am pretty forgiving of Paul's experimentations in other genres. I like just about all the fireman stuff. I like when he takes risks and does things different with music. I just think that this is one that's not that. This isn't a daring foray into a new musical style. Rather, it's Paul at a synthesizer kind of noodling around and pressing it to a disc. And, um, you know, somebody proved me wrong on this one, but I think that's pretty much where 
Frozen Jap is at in terms of a song, a song title, the song content. Um, there's some other much stronger material that he had going on at the time that I think should have been on the record. During the sessions for the album Off the Ground, Paul McCartney and his band recorded Big Boy's Bickering. It was a song about corruption in politics, although it hasn't been documented if there was a specific event that inspired it. Big Boy's Bickering was McCartney's most overtly political song since Give Ireland Back to the Irish, which was issued as a single 20 years earlier. Yet while McCartney's political views made Give Ireland Back to the Irish controversial, it wasn't politics that made Big Boy's Bickering controversial. The controversy was the fact that McCartney repeated the F-word seven times in the song. McCartney believed that the expletive was necessary as a means for expressing his anger and frustration, while critics believed that McCartney's use of profanity was just a cheap ploy to boost sales of his single. Big Boy's Bickering was released on the Hope of Deliverance CD single in December of 1992. Big Boy's Bickering was the third song of McCartney's to be banned by the BBC, yet that fact did not seem to harm Hope of Deliverance's sales, as it was a modest hit in the UK. Big Boy's Bickering was the first and so far only song of McCartney's to be banned by several media outlets in the United States, and yet despite the controversy, the Hope of Deliverance single sold poorly in America. Oh, 
always been a big fan of Off the Ground. There's just something really cool about the way his voice sounds, the way the band sounds that he has this this particular lineup of a band. I think this is just inspired sounding music. And here's an irreverent Paul McCartney song, and it's rare that we have, in my opinion, an irreverent Paul McCartney song. That's that's good. There's a lot of cool chord movement going on. The vocal is memorable. It's got a good hook. Um, and I think obviously the only thing keeping it away from being a hit is maybe the foul language in that. I don't know. He drops the F-bomb. Maybe that's what it is. Because otherwise, I think it's a great Paul McCartney song. Um, it has this really fantastic and well-played acoustic guitar throughout. It has... Um, a cool lyric, um, which is always a plus with a Paul McCartney song. Not necessarily all good Paul McCartney songs have great lyrics. I think this is a great lyric. Big Boy's Bickering is a cool, um, it's a cool you know, alliteration. And and that's what they're doing every day. Big Boy's Bickering up. Bickering, you know, effing it up for everyone. And I think that's cool. I, um, not to mention the fact that as we were look, as I was looking at the chords, um, and we were looking at the song, I noticed that there's uh, it's the same chords, actually, once the verse starts as um, A Day in the Life. And I don't know if that's intentional, but it's the same sort of walk down, right, That that's in the, A Day in the Life, right? I'm not going to try to sing it because my voice is messed up, but, <laughs> you know... I read the news today, oh boy, right? So you kind of picture that. And here this big boy is bickering. It's the same chord progression. It's not like the same tempo and the same thing, but otherwise it's it's identical. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is that an intentional thing? Was he, was he you know, nostalgic for, for the Beatles and Sgt. Peppers and John Lennon's part of that song and he heard that chords or maybe those chords are just familiar to him? Um, this is certainly not the only time that there's some sort of a walk down, you know, where there's like a descending like um, bass line, you know, in a, in a song. There's this, you know, I'm not trying to say that this is the only time that this happened, but it strikes me as interesting that that's I th- pretty specific in G. It's in the same key and it's that same walk down. But nonetheless, I love this song. I love the uh, irreverence of it and... I like that he just has taken the time to, instead of writing a song that's more Paul of um, a description or I am narrating a story, which is typically his kind of um, writing perspective lyrically of being like a detached, like being a reporter. And this is kind of more direct. And I just think it's exciting when when Paul does that. It's just it's fun to listen to. And in this case, I think he just knocks it out of the park. The final song for this episode is The Light Comes From Within, which was co-written by Paul and Linda and featured as a single from Linda's album Wild Prairie, released in October 1998, just six months after her death. The album was a compilation of songs written and recorded by Linda over the span of her musical career, and this song, The Light Comes From Within, was recorded one month before her death and was subsequently the last ever recording session. The Light Comes From Within was written as a response to everybody that had criticized her over the years for her musical talent, or perceived lack thereof, and for her activism regarding animal rights and vegetarianism. In the song, Linda gets the last word against her critics by stating, quote, You're fucking no one, you stupid dick. 
For this reason, most media outlets in the United Kingdom refused to play the song, even though it was never officially banned. Paul McCartney believed that the media's censoring of the song was unfair, and even went so far as to take out full-page advertisements in British newspapers, asking the public to listen to the song and decide for themselves if it was offensive. There's a lot of criticism, of course, of Linda over the years of her singing. She shouldn't be in a band with Paul. And, you know, however you feel about Linda as a musician, she was with Paul through and through all the way to her unfortunate um, too soon of an end to her life um, with her illness. And I think it's, it's, it's clear that she was having a lot of fun towards the end of her life. And she definitely has the last laugh or with this song, you know, definitely the last say anyway, 
with this song. And it, I, I, I think the lyrics are really great. The first time I heard this, I, I, I laughed simply because it's the setup. It, the song is called "The Light Comes From Within," and so you don't you don't expect the setup. Um, and and it is a setup. The lyrics, you know, as she as she starts singing, you don't expect it to go where it goes, and it's just kind of it's just kind of fun. And it's it's a true family affair, as it's Linda uh, doing the lead vocals, of course, and playing some keyboards. Uh, Paul McCartney playing a whole bunch of stuff, a lot of bass, guitar, piano, Wurlitzer, electric piano, backing vocals. Um, I'm assuming he's playing the drums, too. There's not really a drummer credited, at least, that I could find. And then James McCartney, interestingly enough, their um, youngest son, playing electric guitar and acoustic guitar. And it's it's I think the song's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's great. And, you know, you know, again, if you take just a, a look at Linda and it kind of make because it, it, the, the song brings up just, you know, looking at her in wings and looking at her as a, as a side man in this band all these years is that she really was the, the you know, the at the receiving end of just some real nastiness uh, from the press, nastiness from uh, sometimes fans, I'm, I'm sure. And so it was probably quite cathartic for um, not only Linda, but for the McCartneys, the McCartney family, to record and, and, and record the song and put the song out. Because just as a final, you know, F you with their fingers in the air um, towards towards all those people that had criticized her because, um, you know, really it's nobody's business why she was in the band all those years and did all those things other than Paul's and hers. And a lot of what she did all those years, I think, is pretty cool, as we've covered in Ram and some other things. Um, but I think it's I think it's a I think it's a good last recording uh, for Linda to do. And it's just fun that it's a whole McCartney experience. And that wraps up this episode. Thanks to the Dave Allen Quintet for the show's original music. Please check out our website at allmccartneypodcast.com for resources pertaining to this episode. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. On Facebook, we're All McCartney, and follow us on Twitter at All McCartney Pod. My name is Amy. My name is Andy. Thanks for listening to All McCartney. <laughs> <laughs>